Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 49. Carissa finds it hard to think around Keltham. Not in a stupid, romantic way, she doesn't think, though she's aware it's the obvious interpretation. She thinks it's more that all of her mind has to be pointed at him. She has to be paying attention to the surroundings, the conversation, the connected, distant implications, the opportunities for flirtation. She has to be directing most of her mind at the deception surrounding Keltham and also impress him with the quality of conversation she can generate with the part of her mind that's on him. As a result, the sober Carissa diagnosis of what she's like around Keltham is that she's fundamentally reactive. She follows trains of thought of his. She answers his questions. She teases him. She ventures a bit of promising theology, occasionally, if she's feeling bold, but she cannot construct an overarching plan. Which is fine, not that debilitating, it just means she needs one in advance. But tonight has been kind of eventful, and the plan she had before they went to practice. Keltham's cleric spells is a bit outdated. Kissing Keltham leaves more space to think than talking to him does, so she persists in it. Even once she would ordinarily declare that quite enough kissing— she wants to convince him to fuck her. She's pretty sure that this is an important step in building intimacy. It involves him trusting her with something and her demonstrating that trust warranted, and in her not really very professional judgment it's the best sex act for his kinks. It's about power without obliging him to do a lot of deliberate and constructed making it about power, which he's still learning how to do. She wants to gently introduce, in a testing-the-waters kind of way, the ideas that one. Some girls are into out-there stuff. Carissa's about average, and that means half of girls are kinkier than her. See where that line of thought takes him. Two. Power is more interesting when it's not a game. Nobles play for fun, isn't it? And three. The thing that makes this right is that Keltham wants it and can get it. The third one seems hard. She spent a fair share of her beauty appointment playing it in her head with imaginary Keltham. You want it and can get it. That's what matters. That's why it's all right. It's all right for you to have things, assuming you can get them without breaking the law. Imaginary Keltham. Right, but the reason the law doesn't prohibit this is that you also want it. Otherwise, it would. If you try to propose a law that says it doesn't matter what you want, then all the people where the law agrees it doesn't matter what they want would simply overthrow the law and replace it with a law who didn't say that, and even if they wouldn't, they could in principle, so the law can't say that. You want it and can get it. Does it, does it feel like there's something important there? Something that Doth Elan would be missing if they treated that as sort of a sideshow that gets to rise to relevance only if every other feature of the situation has lined up just right. Imaginary Keltham. Well, it's relevant no matter what. It's just that sometimes the way in which it's relevant is that society should try to have fewer people like me in it, or that it needs to put more emphasis on people not doing things just because they want to. You want it and can get it. 
That's itself appealing about you. Maybe that's a very circuitous fetish, but it feels very fundamental. To me. The trait that matters in the world is being able to get things you want, and the most romantic situation is being wanted. And that means there's inherently nothing sexier than someone who wants you and can get what he wants. That one feels promising, but like it achieves its promisingness by running askew and probably being heresy. Again. She still thinks it's a line of argument worth attempting. Maybe you can get someone to... Being willing to do whatever it takes to get what they want is sexy. And then from there to being willing to do whatever it takes to get what they want is okay. She still tries to imagine objections imaginary Keltham might have. But imaginary Keltham mostly says things like, Math you've never heard of proves that doesn't work. Which is a sign she needs to take this problem to actual Keltham. Once she has a plan... Which she doesn't, yet, so. More kissing. Dothilani learn fast, generalize fast, and get bored with a speed that would shock the more easily amused. They overcomplicate sex because they have no choice. They do their best to protect their kids from sexual spoilers so that young adults can have the joy of discovery and amusing stories to tell for the rest of their lives, and also so that young adults don't exhaustively play out simple, basic sex in their heads before having it which, if they did, would lead them to learn the pattern and get bored by it even faster. Even Keltham of the plus zero. 8SD, though, is able to spend a while just kissing Carissa without getting bored the first time he does that. She is quite kissable. Also snuggly. She likes Keltham. Her thoughts are probably lingering on this because of how she's presently kissing him, but it's true— and no doubt there's been at least one agonized meeting over it, though somehow no one has reprimanded her, maybe because they know that she really, really, really does not want to be a statue. And even if all the other pillars of her motivational structure grew, Keltham rot inside them, and they haven't, she will still not betray them. She's heard it said, dismissively, that the characteristic female fantasy is that there is a powerful man who could hurt you, but he doesn't. Maybe that's all that it is. But right now, the way that it is is that she likes Keltham, and when he has her in his arms, all her plans maintain only the most tenuous of connections to her, bobbing up and down in the periphery of her mind like a sailor overboard on the high seas, visible for a long time despite being almost immediately beyond rescue. And maybe she should troubleshoot that. What are her objectives? First, to get Keltham to feel attached to her. Second, to comprehend him fully in order to build the evil version of Dath Ilani thought. Third, stretch goal, seduce him to evil. The third one seems tricky right now. That's okay. Carissa's going to be forgiving of herself about that. Other people, too, agree that it seems hard. Keltham is still grappling with ideas like that smarter people might take advantage of less smart ones. This part of the operation is in exploratory mode, right now, and that's all right. The second one also seems tricky right now, though more necessary than ever. Whenever Carissa is around Keltham, she gets confused about the nature of evil. It's because the version she gave him just fits better into a pathetic human mind? In hindsight, it's obvious that trying to destroy the world might seem good, 
that Rovagug cultists certainly would be, principled believers that the world should be devoured at their own expense, and the observable fact about the world that almost everyone ends up evil makes more sense if evil is about selfishness or lack of altruism than it does with the understanding that evil is, well, Abigail Thrun. Carissa is pretty sure this thought will end up in a transcript for Abigail Thrun tomorrow. So hi, Abigail Thrun, please don't turn me into a statue. Abigail Thrun, I am suffering in your service very diligently, Abigail Thrun, but most people are not Abigail Thrun. Most people are not even weak, pale shadows of Abigail Thrun. Tyranny, slavery, pride, contracts. Most people kind of just bumble along being weak and pathetic, and Carissa is confused about one, how any of them make law, and two, how any of them make evil. She's not worried about herself personally. She's definitely making progress on law, and she thinks she's made some progress on being genuinely evil the last two days. She's taking to authority nicely and has lit people on fire when they deserved it and offering to destroy Asmodia's soul in a dark sorceress rite, if it's not heretical to contemplate, was kind of fun, though also Carissa wants everyone to go to hell and not get destroyed in sorceress rites. Is that good? If she wants it in a way that's not about what Asmodeus wants, that's about the sheer horror of their annihilation. It's at the very least the product of a broken mind misunderstanding doctrine. And yet, it hadn't occurred to Asmodea what they had to be trying to do here. But they are going to have to do it, or the mountains of spell silver will go to everyone and Cheliax won't be uniquely advantaged, might be disadvantaged even if their current systems for promoting enough law and evil to get their children clear of Abaddon and into hell, stop working on a smarter generation of children, reformulate that to be less pathetic and broken, even if it means it fits less well into her present mind. She doesn't wish to err when she's trying to do strategic planning, even if the errors are convenient otherwise. Even if she suspects Asmodeus chose her partially for her heresies, Cheliax's current systems get souls to Asmodeus. Who wants them? Asmodeus has extended this project resources on the assumption it can get him more souls, or more useful ones, and that's why it ought to do that. Asmodea is presumably being tortured right now, and Carissa hopes she's not useless when she gets back. Maybe it'll be good for her motivation. The first goal, on the other hand, is going great. Mayol says the things she'd done shouldn't have worked, but they did, and Keltham likes her. And if she only had to accomplish the first goal, she'd practically have accomplished it already, and she could just keep him interested and roll around on a giant mountain of spell silver. Maybe. Keltham hasn't really hurt Carissa. In a sense, no one has ever really hurt Carissa. She talks a good game, but she was careful in her old life about which powerful adventurers who could kill her if they were so inclined she climbed up into a rope trick with. She mostly went for girls, because whatever Maylal says, they are less inclined to hurt you. On average, though, obviously, Abrogale Thrun, hi, Abrogale Thrun, is entitled to do exactly as she pleases, with Carissa including turning her into a statue, 
Though Carissa really, really hopes that she won't do that because Carissa wants to go to hell and will make herself very useful to Abigail Thrun there. If she gets there, subordinate devils are worth having, much more useful than statues. Anyway, Keltham can bite her and claw at her, but he hasn't, for example, even looked at the pokers in the fireplace, and he hasn't even asked for tips on the most efficient ways to hurt people without causing damage, and unless you count the cursed bag of holding as a sexual experience and plausibly, Carissa, should she hasn't actually, been tortured in a sex way and shouldn't have high confidence in how gracefully she'll handle it, except within the bounds of how well she handles it in other contexts, it seems possible she'll like Keltham less once she's taught him how and why to really hurt her. It's possible that whatever switch will flip in her head and he'll be terrifying instead of intriguing, and then everything will just suck, which would be good practice for hell, if so. Carissa thinks that somehow all this thinking is actually making her worse at her job and she should abandon it and go back to not thinking, which was working fine, kind of. Um, so, she says, are we supposed to have an in-depth conversation about how sex works now? Or, given that your notes were destroyed, will we have to have sex in order to recreate the conditions under which you can recreate your notes? I'd say, stop trying to pressure me into sex. But I find that I in fact enjoy being asked, and maybe even enjoy getting to say no. And I expect I can recall at least some of my questions, though probably not in the right order. Noting a cultural difference that while if you don't want me to stop, it's not a big deal, we haven't had any interactions which to Chilish understandings involve pressure. And I can try to answer questions. Civilization would have it something like, if a woman says no a couple of times, you're supposed to stop asking and not be visibly not in most preferred state about not having sex. You don't lie, obviously. You just conceal the overt feedback. She may guess, obviously, and if she asked you just tell her. It's not about a deception, even a deception by concealment. The point is that you're not exerting a direct pressure on subverbal parts of herself by being visibly sad at them. It can be different for a woman pestering a man for sex, but only to the extent she has extremely reliable information, which basically means, information directly from him, that he's highly conformant to the masculine gender trope, and that sub-gender trope in particular. I would have provided you with that information just now, when I told you that I was enjoying being asked and saying no. Keltham is just using baseline gender trope as a loanword into Taldane. At this point, since the corresponding concept in Taldane simply doesn't exist. Civilization is all very structures to make sure that people end up having the power to protect themselves in their sexual relationships and the realistic ability to decide for themselves without that taking a lot of mental work. And common knowledge that everyone has in fact been trained to protect themselves that way and pass some tests about it, all so that people can be given full responsibility to decide for themselves. So long as you're following those rules, in a world where you know everybody else follows those rules, it means you don't have to worry about them on their behalf, or try to protect them more than they protect themselves, or doubt them when they say yes. The typical Dath Ilani man has a great horror of accidentally harming somebody, like that, and the rules are there so they can be less scared after somebody says yes to them. Huh? We don't have any of those rules, and I expect probably do have a higher rate of whatever problems you're trying to solve, 
But if someone asked me for sex repeatedly and I disliked being asked because it was mental work to keep refusing, then I would say no and stop asking or something. And if I said no and then someone was visibly sad, I would not care because I'm evil. There are kinds and kinds of evil then, and I am some, but not others. I may someday understand what it means to decide everything because you have given yourself to me to see what I make of you. I can feel a part of myself yearning for this thing I don't yet understand, but I have no interest in learning how to see you being visibly sad and not care. Not encouraging, though adorable. But people can be wrong about themselves. All right. Am I supposed to have that in mind when deciding whether to be visibly sad, or am I supposed to just be visibly sad whenever I would around a chelish person? I think you should err an awful lot on the side of visibility, until I've been on this planet for longer than two days and can guess literally at all what the ass is ever going on without tons and tons of evidence. I have been through mental training, and it's not like it would be easy for you to pressure me into sex. I didn't want, and then successfully do mental damage to me that way, because, for example, I will in fact say no if you ask me to have sex while I'm still shaken up from my first non-simulated violence. Knowing this, you know that it is safe to be visibly sad around me, that you cannot easily hurt me like that. This is Adathilani's dignity, and at deeper layers, their friendship. I am not from Dathilan, and haven't had any specialized evaluation of my capacity to do things without hurting myself. But I am not often wrong about how I'll feel about things, and you're not going to hurt me by being visibly sad around me, or by doing something I've told you is all right, or by doing something I haven't told you is all right but haven't objected to, and I feel upset at the idea there's a world of men terrified of accidentally harming someone when they should be entitled to enjoy themselves with people who aren't so easily harmed. Also seems absolutely brutal on women with fetishes for being forced, but maybe that's how you bred all of those out? I'm not saying you can't have high levels of your own world's dignity, just that it would be helpful to understand that dignity. I can tell it's very different and the men aren't going around being terrified because civilization faced the problem head-on and solved it. Also, fetishes for being forced? The Taldane word force can mean several different things. It's not obvious to Keltham how it translates here. Like, it's no fun if a man asks them if it's all right. It's only fun if he just grabs them to have his way with them. It's gotta be like the third, fourth, most common fetish. Okay, see, that doesn't sound not Dadi Lan in the way other things do. Lots of people enjoy being pursued, and I can easily imagine how some would enjoy being pursued harder. I mean, I doubt it's anything like that common. But it's not anti-natural like finding somebody who gets sexually aroused by pain. I'd put something like 30% probability that we do have that at a layer of perversion above mine. And if we do, somewhere in civilization, possibly a suburb of Arrowtown or Nanville, there are whole complexes full of women who've registered their preferences for men in sufficient detail that the highest bidders on them can just walk into their houses and haul them into the cuddle room with pairings near guaranteed to find each other attractive, even if nobody talks about it at all. Huh. All right. Maybe those women do fine. Although in our world, that tendency tends to go along with liking pain, because it's not very realistic if he grabs you and is then very gentle and concerned with your pleasure, and it's better if it's realistic. 
Reportedly, this isn't actually a fetish of mine. I won't object if you jump me without notice sometime, but that's because I like you and am a good sport, rather than because the possibility of being jumped without notice is specifically thrilling. Inner query. If Carissa did like being jumped without being asked, would Keltham want to do that sometimes? Inner response. Loud, yes. Welp, time to venture another prediction on a model that, while it doesn't exactly fit everything, sure does apparently seem to fit some things. However, says Keltham, at least one of the girls in the class, and furthermore, one of the girls who registered a high response about how surprising she'll be, does have that fetish. Shit, he does think they're manipulating it. Which isn't fair. She doesn't see the law he's using. I haven't asked the other girls what they're into, but given that it's one of the most common fetishes, probably, and if not, we could, uh, put out an ad among wizard students somewhere slightly farther than Ostenso and find you someone, if you are intrigued. Oh, I'm not saying she'll be surprising because she has that fetish. The surprising thing about her will be something that even someone from Galarian would find shocking. But she'll also have that fetish, which is very common here, and isn't surprising at all if you're not me. I mean, assuming the basic premise here is true, which it hopefully isn't. It would be a whole lot easier to nope the shit out of that hypothesis, if not, you know, air-traveling machine crash, surviving my own true death and all that. I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't be talking about this in front of you at all. If it's true, there's definitely nothing you can do about it until I've figured more things out, unless that trope is being specifically subverted. It would be a puzzle thrown at a Dath Elani, not at someone from Galerion. He's probably just alarming her more at this point, isn't he? This, in retrospect, must be why the usual convention says that the NPCs in a meta Erolarp, Erolarp. Can't hear you talk about the Layer Zero Erolarp until you've made more progress with them. It seems important to get Keltham to explain this second layer of law that he uses to infer that Pilar was chosen by Caden Kylean without knowing about Pilar or Caden Kylean. Even if there's nothing I can do about it, if it's important to you and part of what you're using to make predictions about the world, then I want to understand it. Keltham considers explaining the concept of an Aerolarp, much more famous novels deconstructing those Aerolarps, and Aerolarps based on novels deconstructing Aerolarps. He considers trying to explain how quantum mechanics is known from experiment, and how it in turn implies the many worlds, and what the nature of amplitudes led civilization to realize about reality fluid, and how all those many worlds must be embedded into a still larger reality, in which the quantum multiverse itself is multiply-instantiated, and how, having survived an airplane crash, there is a single obvious wild thought about what must have happened to him, that ending in almost all places he continued on within a remaining and improbable one. If he was a keeper, probably, Keltham would already know it, for it seems like the sort of thing that must be deducible from first principles, if it is true at all and also an obvious massive info-hazard in ways that Keltham may not have begun to conceive. He's not sure exactly why it will be massively info-hazardous, but it obviously will be. And now, the place where he finds himself, has people who aren't any plausible equilibrium of selection pressures, but happen to exactly fit the complementary shape of his own unsatisfied and unsatisfiable sexuality. 
and there's a research group full of girls roughly his age, with himself the sole male among them, and an explicit rationalization for why they all want his seed, and they all have economic magic, and three, five of them have fascinating backstories that even Galerion would find surprising, while Nadal invades Cheliax, targeting him personally, and the god treaties break down, thereby forcing him to relocate to a new bedroom decorated in doompunk with chains attached to the bed. What happens if you perform an evidential update from that, and then predict the future? He considers explaining this to somebody who is not going to know, at least until tomorrow, maybe not even for two whole more days, what an evidential update is. Carissa, he says, truly apologetically, you have not, in fact, ever heard me try to explain any topic that civilization would consider at all complicated. And this is a little complicated. I know which concept I'd explain first in the sequence of the explanation, and I was going to do that concept tomorrow, but that sequence goes on for a while. Is it likely to cause some kind of catastrophe before you can get around to explaining it? When the research harem reconvenes, maybe I'll try an augury about what happens if I politely ask everyone who registered themselves as very interesting to stand up and explain their backstories to me, each other, and the rest of the research group. Given the entire premise, which I emphasize is still rather less likely than likely, that would be the most obvious way to diffuse any potential catastrophes if it did not itself cause a catastrophe. Uh, shit. What happened to Broom? Broom went invisible, stayed out of the way as best he could, and is now in a nicely appointed palace room of his own, awaiting a check-in from Aspexia Rugaton. Broom wasn't exactly considered unimportant earlier, but now that an attack from Nidal, on the site of an Otolman's event, has started a war among the gods, he rates a few more minutes of her time, in case he knows literally anything whatsoever. Carissa has been apprised of this, but Carissa, who isn't running this operation, would not have been apprised of this. I didn't see him in the pile of bodies. The war among the gods, that's the kind of thing that maybe qualifies as a giant mess. The last one killed 15% of the global population. Not the same tragedy it would be in civilization. He has to keep reminding himself of that until Galarian becomes cached. Keltham pokes her in the ribs harder than he would if Carissa wasn't a masochist. That's for talking about 15% of the global population dying while we were lying in bed. Daithilani do strive to learn from experience literally at all. Deep, elaborate bow, the most elaborate she can manage while in bed cuddling him. I beg your forgiveness. I guess I do have to ask earlier rather than later, under the circumstances, if the planet's scathing side effects of a god war are the sort of thing where... We should stay dressed in case we suddenly have to evacuate the palace. Our chances of having to suddenly evacuate are probably much higher than usual, but from a very low base. Is the 15% thing, like, definite now that the God War started? Or could it maybe just be a small one this time? We don't exactly have lots of examples. But last time, most of the people who died died because all around the world there were 12 days of really intense wind and rain, intense enough to wash out all the crops and uproot most of the trees, and so there was no harvest, and so they starved, and if this one is faster or less rainy, I have no idea what makes God Wars rainy, then maybe almost no one will die. The lights aren't going to kill anyone. This war has at least my god, Asmodeus, and Nethus all allied and trying to take out Zonkuthon. But given why Zonkuthon did it, 
There could be any number of other gods allied with him. Well, probably not any good ones. But how does that match up to whatever the last god war was about? I think that's better than the last god war, which was, I think, close to an even split. A god called Eridan had decided to make Galarian his divine realm instead of having it in Axis and rule it directly, and the gods were very closely divided on this plan, and he went ahead when he thought he had just enough support it wasn't worth it to his opponents to fight. And then, prophecy broke. There could never have been a god war before prophecy broke, right? They'd see how'd it go and just settle accordingly. Unless you're about to wreck so much of what a god cares about that there's nothing left for them to negotiate, so they try to launch a preemptive strike team at you, and when that fails, go down fighting. Yeah, that does seem to be the other circumstance under which you'd have a god war. But it's hard to imagine he'll have many allies. It's not like many gods have much common ground with the god whose values are inverted. So maybe it'll be a quick one. The war between Cheliax and Nadal will probably last much longer, but is vanishingly unlikely to oblige us to evacuate. Huh. So nothing civilization would consider scalable weaponry, then? Where scalable weaponry is weaponry that you can go on making more destructive, if for some reason it needs to be even more destructive. Nobody plays realistic alien invasion rehearsals. They'd be too short and depressing. Carissa feels a quiet chill, even though this isn't new information— they knew Dathilan had vastly superior weaponry because it has vastly superior everything. Nothing like that. There's a place in Garund where there's a wasteland for hundreds of miles because two Ninth Circle wizards fought there, but it isn't actually dangerous to travel through. It's just that magic behaves weirdly and plants mostly don't grow. There's opening something like the world wound, but Nadal and Cheliax are both lawful and committed to not doing that. And anyway, it's very, very difficult and still doesn't just straightforwardly scale up. I would know, I think, if there were something that a reasonable number of people knew about or that had ever in history been used, because people at the World Wound pay a lot of attention to our options, however speculative, for closing it. There could, of course, be secret things. And one time, some people crashed a moon into the planet, so uh, there's that. I guess. Small moon? Or are we talking like a couple of billion years ago? Small moon. It was 10,000 years ago, and it would have ended life on the planet if not for divine intervention of various stripes. It did annihilate both the civilization that dropped it and the one they were fighting with. There was no sun for many, many years. But with magic, small populations can limp along without. We call it the Age of Darkness. There is a remaining moon, and I wouldn't exactly put it past Nadal if they're losing everything, but the Crown and Church will have thought of this. It started to feel like somebody is recounting a colorful, fascinating backstory for Atmosphere, rather than something that actually happened, which potentially indicates that he's under enough internal stress to produce derealization. The whole point of history is that it actually happened. Civilization may have hidden much of it, but for what remains— in the recent and far more distant past. The whole point is that it's not just another story. Yeah, that's around as much damage as civilization could do to a planet, and they might need a few months of lead time to scale it that far. Well, it's as much damage as they could do, using methods that people like me are allowed to know about, but... 
But why talk about that or think about it if you're not a keeper? Except there are no keepers here, out of Dathilan, just Keltham, now. I think I should stop talking about this, Carissa, at least for the night. I may not be able to simultaneously handle the aftermath of non-simulated violence and also thinking about what my being here may have set off. Makes sense. I'm sorry. Did you have sex questions that are very narrow in scope and won't get into world history at all? Well, at least ones I don't expect to interact much with world history. But we should first do some manner of snuggly thing. No, not sex. To get my brain out of its current place. Does testing out the chains count as sex? Well, so long as you're not expecting too much, I suppose whatever happens to you will happen. I am trying to hear and absorb what you're saying literally at all. And if I've managed to do that correctly literally at all, I do grasp that's the point of the chains. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.